They were doing these after-hours concerts on the riverboat back then, the riverboat president. Great part of New Orleans jazz house history, for sure. Um, and so this particular night, uh, Rita Marley, the Neville Brothers, and a band called Exuma, which was a great kind of like a Bahamian Junkanoo band. Uh, they were, it was a triple bill on the riverboat president. Me and my, my buddy uh, Bruce from uh, Ruston, Louisiana, we came down here, and strangely enough, this is a, you know, I've never said this ever in my life before then, and hadn't had to have said it since then, but standing on the deck of the ship that night, I looked at my friend and said, I just have this weird feeling that I'm going to fall in love tonight, that I'm going to meet the woman of my dreams. And he was like, yeah, right, sure, whatever, you know. But uh, it's true, we met, we met in the, uh, standing in line, you know, like to, to get a beer or something, and we've been together ever since. Welcome back to Festival Circuit New Orleans. I'm Rob Steinberg. This is episode four. We were able to go home, rest a bit, clean up, and now we're ready to go out and explore the all-night music scene around the city during the Jazz Fest. As you heard from Papa Molly at the top, amazing things can happen at the Late Night Jazz Fest shows. The show he was at was on Friday, May 7th, 1982, aboard the SS President one of the most legendary venues associated with the history of Jazz Fest. I was at that show as well. I was working for Rita Marley at the time during that tour and the release of her first album. Her two sons with Bob, Ziggy, age 11, and Steven, age 8, were there as well. And it would be among the first time that Bob's children would perform in the U.S. It was a magical night for sure, as most shows on The President were. But let's start by looking at what the late night jazz fest scene has become. If you had attended Jazz Fest in 2019, you would have had the pick of 179 late night shows over the two week period of the festival. Some starting as early as 8 p.m. and others wouldn't end until the sun came up. In many ways, the late night jazz fest scene has become even more of a draw than the festival itself for musicians and fans. In this episode, we wanted to explore the question, what makes the late night shows such a draw for fans and musicians alike? Robert Walter, who you heard at the end of episode three, was at several of the 179 late night shows in 2019. He plays in the Grey Boy All-Stars, Robert Walter's 20th Congress, and Mike Gordon's band. Here's his take on what it is about New Orleans that allows this late night scene to flourish. One is that the city is so... Um it's, it, it enables the party to happen because things can go 24 hours and there's there's sort of a general spirit of, of you know, wanting to encourage people to have fun. Um, and music's so much part of the city anyway. So there's a million great venues, there's a great, million great musicians. There is sort of a common repertoire in the city. And when I, when I lived there, you play different groups of musicians every night you, you might not even know who's going to be on the thing because somebody has another gig so it's a new drummer you haven't played with before and it, it, eventually everybody interacts with each other that's kind of like in the music already it's a recipe for success for music fans too your favorite artists tons of musical parties where anything can happen well count me in but some fans may take it a bit too far here's writer jay Mazza. I mean, I know lots of people now who come in for Jazz Fest and never go to the fairgrounds. You know, they just, they're just, they just come for the night shows and they stay out all night and go have breakfast or whatever, crash out, get up and do it all over again. 
The late-night tradition at Jazzfest goes back to the beginning. At the 1970 festival, there was a Mississippi River Jazz cruise on the Steamer President, which featured Pete Fountain and his orchestra and Clyde Kerr and his orchestra. Performances on the SS President, which would feature late-night official Jazz Fest music from 1970 to 1988, represented an homage to riverboat bands playing along the Mississippi, which dates back to the early 20th century. And eventually this tradition would grow into what we know today, hundreds of shows at dozens of venues around the city during Jazz Fest. According to the New Orleans Times-Picayune, the SS President, a sidewheel riverboat built in 1924, came to New Orleans in 1941 and was renovated to become the largest excursion boat in the country, featuring a grand ballroom with a bandstand. Key features for the countless concerts and music cruises the vessel would host over its four decades as one of New Orleans' most unique music venues. According to the incomplete, year-by-year, -year, selectively quirky, Prime Facts edition of the history of the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival, in 1970, the first year of the festival, the president shoved off at 8.30 p.m. and returned around midnight. During those three and a half hours, Pete Fountain and Clyde Kerr and their respective orchestras played to a kinetic crowd of 2,200, and a new tradition was born. Here's what Irma Thomas had to say about the development of the nighttime scene at Jazz Fest and the SS president. Beginning from when I first started with it, it, it you know, it, it developed into having night, nighttime shows because a lot of the people who traveled in from out of town was, was hungry for more entertainment. So the, the Jazz and Heritage Foundation decided to start having night concerts. And one of the night concerts became a uh, became one of the biggest attractions was on the Riverboat President when it was docked at the foot of Canal Street. Along with other venues around the city, they would have different different uh, entertainers perform a second show either that same weekend or the days in between the two weekends. And it was a lot of fun because it gave the out-of-towners a chance to to get a more close and uh, up close and personal a part of being entertained by these various people, and I played a lot of them, and they were fun. Between 1970 and 1988, the President shows became an integral part of the festival's history, often with artists doing two shows per night. The second show happened when the boat was docked by the Spanish Plaza, but during the first show, it sailed up and down the Mississippi, which was both magical and unique. What struck me the first time I was on the riverboat was that as it sailed in one direction, you could see the city on both the left and right side of the boat. And this was due to the big bend in the river. There were other late night venues as well, including many memorable shows at the Municipal Auditorium. In the early days, like 1974, you could see traditional jazz on the president, whereas you could see a sold out show at Municipal Auditorium with Gladys Knight, Herbie Hancock, and others. Here's Ben Jaffe of Preservation Hall, remembering those early days on the president. This whole idea of like late night concerts really wasn't wasn't a wasn't what it is today. And I just I remember you know there I, <laughs> a little kid. I mean I don't know. Yeah, you. I remember you, when you hear the engine the engine would start and the, the, you could hear the paddle wheel going and then the boat would start moving and everybody would start cheering. You know it was like now we're pulling off from the shore. We're out in water and. Yeah, it was it was these uh, 
incredibly magical, vivid memories I have. The shows on the president were so popular that in 1975, the SS Admiral reported for replacement duty. It was a 3,500 person, Art Deco style sleek riverboat. That year, you could see B.B. King, Fats Domino, and Alan Toussaint one night on the Admiral, and the Steamboat Stomp, a traditional jazz show the next. In 1979, the U.S. Coast Guard prohibited the ship from traveling the Mississippi. Just like the president, the Admiral eventually was hauled off to St. Louis and sold for scrap metal. I'm getting on in years, too. I hope they don't sell me up the river for parts. As Jazz Fest grew, so did the late night scene. 1976 was the first festival to count 100,000 attendees. Other late night shows started to pop up at venues all around the city. Places like The Warehouse, The Royal Sinesta Hotel, and others. Promoters, venue owners, and musicians started to see opportunities to offer more music beyond the fairgrounds. By 1981, there were 13 night concerts at venues all around the city, and dozens more at bars and clubs not necessarily organized by the festival. You could spend the evening seeing Jimmy Cliff, Muddy Waters, James Brown, Alan Toussaint, Ellis Marcellus, or head uptown and catch the Neville Brothers, the Radiators, or the Percolators. Maybe you could skip the fairgrounds on occasion to see music all night, but in 1981, I was not going to miss a day of Jazz Fest. Let's go back to the president. There's someone who's been mentioned a lot in this series, but who we haven't talked about much, and that's Alan Toussaint. He made frequent appearances on the president. You may already know about Alan Toussaint. After all, he is New Orleans royalty. Born and raised in the city, he played piano from a young age and was producing by the time he was 25. In the 1960s and 1970s, he produced albums and songs for Jesse Hill, Art Neville, Aaron Neville, Lee Dorsey, Dr. John, The Wild Chapatulas, The Meters, and more. He also did a lot of work with Irma Thomas. Here's how she remembers working with him. Yeah, when you're working with somebody that you've been working with over the years, you don't think about their legacy. You don't think about their impact. You enjoy the moment because a lot of the things that Alan wrote, I discovered later, which he said, that I was his muse in terms of what he heard in his head when he was writing the music. And as an individual, you don't think about that kind of stuff when you're enjoying the performance of what you're doing. Through his work with artists mentioned earlier, especially the meters, Alan Toussaint helped build on the piano-driven R&B sound of Professor Longhair and brought the 1970s New Orleans funk sound to life. And people from all over the world sought him out. Here's Irma Thomas again. There was a lot of success for a lot of entertainers out there, both local and national. And so whatever he had going on for him, a lot of folks gave him that great respect because they used to seek him out and come to New Orleans and seek him out for him to be their producer. And in some many occasions, he actually wrote songs specifically for them. Here are a few more artists that Alan Toussaint ended up writing, producing, and collaborating with. Paul McCartney, Robert Palmer on his epic song, Sneaking Sally Through the Alley, which was written by Alan Toussaint, and the backing band, The Meters, and members of Little Feet. He also worked with Elvis Costello, Patti LaBelle, Joe Cocker, and Etta James. And he was a fixture on the President and the Admiral. He performed on these ships in at least eight of the Jazz Fest years. And a handful of those years were with Irma Thomas. 
they paired us up together to do a show. And, of course, some other entertainers was paired up with Alan as well. And it gave it gave the, the, the audience a chance to see how we work together, how a lot of the entertainers work together. Even some of the out-of-town entertainers was paired up with some of the local entertainers. And it, it made for just one hell of a show. One of those out-of-towners was Boz Skaggs, who not only performed on The President, but was a fan, attending several of Allen's riverboat shows in the late 70s and early 80s. Occasionally, joining him on stage for Allen's song that he covered and had a hit with called What Do You Want the Girl to Do? When Allen passed away in 2015, Boz performed that song at his memorial tribute at the Orpheum Theater, and it brought all of us in attendance to tears. Dozens of musicians came together for that tribute in New Orleans. At the end, we paraded out of the theater, led by a brass band, formed a second line and continued to celebrate Mr. Tucson in the streets of the city that loved him so dearly. Here's how Irma remembers him. He was a very introverted person, very kind-hearted person, and when he, when he was into what he was doing, he was a very serious working person. I mean, he, when he wrote a song, he taught it to you the way he heard it in his head and how he wanted it done. Now, once it was recorded, you could take whatever liberties with it you wanted to, but when he when he wrote it and how he had it in his mind is how he taught it. And we gave him great respect for that because there was a lot of success behind what he did and the way he did it. That's exactly the kind of weight these concerts on the water had legendary musicians from New Orleans and far beyond. 1988 was the last year that the SS president took musicians and fans out on the Mississippi River as part of Jazz Fest. And it took some attendees beyond planet Earth. But Sun Ra and the riverboat president was one of the greatest experiences. Everybody, I don't know if you know, it's large, avant-garde. He's from Saturn. And... <laughs> And when, you know, when people were walking out, they were all singing, welcome to the, space is the place, <laughs> welcome to the 21st century. And the president left a gap here on earth as well. Let's go back to Irma Thomas one more time. It left a little hole in the, in, in the nighttime performances because people used to look forward to going on the riverboat uh, president, because not only did we have, the only time it didn't sail is when the fire marshals would say there was too many people on board, so it wouldn't sail, just to not to have to ask people to leave in order for it to sail. But on those nights when it could sail, it was like having a, a double whammy there. You could ha enjoy the music and, and, and sail on the Mississippi River at the same time. I mean, how many folks can say that they've done that? you know, go and, ha and have a great time at Jazz Fest by going on, on, a, on a boat and see it, have an entertainment and have your choice of listening to the entertainment while you're listening, go out on the deck area and, and, and view the city at night. I mean, it was just one beautiful experience. The book Prime Facts notes, the Mississippi River was inexorably tied to the music. There was something about sailing out onto the water that evoked another world. The music and the smoke and the laughter and shouts seeped into the walls and the floorboards. And probably, when the boat was docked upriver in St. Louis, the ghosts of jazz masters relived the good times and the music still played on. We'll be back in a minute.
1989, with the absence of the president, Jazz Fest put up a river tent for night shows. Right on the edge of the Mississippi, this tent would allow for a similar feel to being on the water. The first weekend featured shows with Santana, the Neville Brothers, Miles Davis, and Wynton Marcellus. The second weekend, though, there was a weather-related hitch, which happens a lot in New Orleans. A storm blew in and blew down the tent and soaked the equipment. 2,000 chairs, a grand piano, and more. That Friday show had to be moved to the Municipal Auditorium, which was a very different vibe. Here's Jay Mazza. I remember one time Van Morrison, this was after the river tent got hit by lightning. Luckily it was after the show because many people would have died, like it was destroyed. And they had to move it. And I remember this being one of the, um, one of the, uh, the shifting of like the, the, the culture, I guess is the best way to describe it, is the radiators, Van Morrison, and there's somebody else on the bill in Municipal Auditorium, and they would not let people dance. And I mean, it was aggressive policing. And we're like, okay, we're never coming to these, this again. This is just out of control. The official late night Jazz Fest shows continued until 2004. But in the 90s, as the unofficial late night scene developed further, there were some business-minded music fans who were seeking opportunities. Here's Rick Farman who co-founded Superfly in New Orleans in 1996. Rick was still in college when they started the company to promote concerts. And here's how he remembers that time. Very early in, in getting to Tulane, I got exposed to, um, you know, the real um, New Orleans music scene and, um, you know, going to see, you know, George Porter and Walter Wolfman Washington and Rebirth and almost all that was happening on Oak Street uh, between the Maple Leaf and a bar called Muddy Waters, um, which was there at the time. Um, and, uh, you know, the Maple Leaf and Hank Staples were really, um, at least from, again, my vantage point, kind of the pioneer of the idea of doing late night shows. I think there was just such a demand for uh, even local artists to be playing the Maple Leaf during that time and everybody knew there was you know, opportunity to make money. And so I think Hank was really the first one to realize that, hey, I could do a show from you know, nine until you know, midnight or 11.30 and then I can clear the house in a half an hour and, you know, turn it around and be doing another show from one to two, three, four in the morning. And that really became sort of the preeminent, like, um, sunrise show. That was like a really deliberate thing, which is, hey, let's start, you know, midnight, one o'clock and play all the way to the sun comes up. Um, and that was just so unique. It was... Um, the kind of thing, you know, uh, that could only happen in New Orleans, that, you know, no other place really um, would allow music to be played that late, would allow a bar to be open that late for that matter. And so it really became kind of like, um, you know, just like an important moment at Mardi Gras. It became, you know, kind of an important moment for that music scene uh, of kind of the, you know, younger, more, um, 
you know, experimental and um, bands that sort of were, you know, not just had a presence in New Orleans. One of those experimental bands was Galactic, which formed in 1994 in New Orleans. Rob Mercurio, the bassist, remembers those days. There really wasn't that much late night shows going on in the 90s. You know, it was, I mean, shows would, the early shows would go later. You know, they'd go till two or three in the morning and there was an uptown bar called Benny's that is um, in the same neighborhood as Le Bon Tom New Orleans um, and then Tipitina's and that place would go pretty late, but they would go late all year round. So it wasn't anything especially different during Jazz Fest, but um, you know, it, I would say around 97, 98 um, is when the the after after shows kind of kicked in and we were one of the bands that really started filling those slots you know and then it became really prevalent where where you know over the next five years every club had a 2 a.m start show and then it reached a pinnacle i think maybe in 2000 where then then they were doing a breakfast show even after that and that would start at 6, 7 a.m. And um, that, personally, I thought was maybe a little absurd. You heard Rob mention Tipitina's, one of the most well-known music venues in all of New Orleans and a focal point for late-night shows. In 2018, Galactic actually purchased the venue so they could keep music alive at Tipitina's. The club has a unique New Orleans history. It was established in 1977 by a group of young local music fans, some from Tulane University, known as the Fabulous Vote Team. It was to provide a place for Professor Longhair to perform in his final years and was named after Fess's famous song. It survived to this day and it has provided countless musicians and music fans all over the world entertainment at all hours of the night. Since COVID-19 has hit, Tipitina's and all of the other music clubs in the city have been closed. With rents, mortgages, utilities, and taxes due, regardless of patronage, these are especially challenging and difficult times. If you are able to support these clubs and musicians, please consider buying merchandise, downloading albums, or making donations. We here at Osiris know how much live music means to all of us, and it'll take all of us to help keep it alive. You can also check out the National Independent Venues Association, which was set up to preserve and nurture the ecosystem of independent live music venues and promoters throughout the United States. You can find them at www.nivassoc.org. Up until the late 90s, many of the music clubs offering late-night shows were uptown, like Tipitina's, Jimmy's, Benny's, and the Maple Leaf. And there was, of course, a lot of music on Bourbon Street, too. But one section of the city was just starting to develop a musical scene at that time. You may have heard of Frenchman Street, which is in the Faubourg Marigny neighborhood. It's now home to some of the most popular live music clubs in the city. One of the first venues to open on Frenchman Street was called DBA. Tom Thayer had opened DBA in New York City's East Village, which was a popular pub. 
Tom loved Jazz Fest and thought about opening an outpost of the bar in New Orleans. Here's how Tom remembers it. We always saw the Frenchman Street as kind of the East Village of, of New Orleans. And at the time, it was not much going on, you know, on the street. There was, you know, Snug Harbor, of course, was still it was there. And, you know, Cafe Brazil was cranking at that time. And we saw we saw the property on front. We saw the 618 property. It was, it was two separate spaces. It was 616 and 618 Frenchman. And we, we just saw all the wood. It's basically, you know, floor-to-ceiling cypress. And, but, the, you know, the building had been all boarded up and um, was just junk was piled in there. It was dusty. It was nasty. But we just, we loved the room. And, you know, so that, that was, we actually looked at it in summer of 99. We closed a couple months later. I moved late 99 uh, to New Orleans. DBA was one of a few clubs that opened on Frenchman Street around that time. Snug Harbor, which you've heard mentioned before, had been there since 1983. But in the late 90s, Spotted Cat, Blue Nile, which was formerly the Dream Palace, Maison, and others started to take root. Part of the beauty of an area like Frenchman Street is that you can hop from show to show at night, just like the musicians do. Here's a memory from Papa Molly. I mean, that kind of thing happens often around here, especially late night during Jazz Fest when everybody just goes around and like hangs out like you go to the Blue Nile or 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 you know DBA or um, you know anywhere on Frenchman Street basically but uh, those are kind of my two two main hangs on Frenchman Street and uh, four in the morning it's like everybody's gotten off their regular gig and they're just coming down there to sit in and jam and oh so many magical moments I was hosting a jam session at Blue Nile one year on my birthday and uh, I had invited Henry Butler and uh, and some other people too, but but um, Henry, as you probably know, is blind, and he couldn't really see the musicians that were walking on and off stage. So he was just having to use his ears to check everybody out. Uh, Mike Dillon came in. I'd invited Mike Dillon to come in, and he brought his entire vibraphone marimba percussion kit, which is a lot of gear. And as soon as Mike got all set up and stuff, and started playing like this. It was the first time he and Henry Butler had ever played together. I didn't know that. But they're both just like musical geniuses, you know. And and uh, so they started just like, as soon as Mike started playing, Henry's ears just kind of perked up and he played a little riff at Mike and Mike played it right back to him. And then they just, they just, it's like they just started conversing in a language that was this far higher than every all the rest of us on stage could, uh, could really understand. They were, they were communicating on another level, and we all just kind of stopped playing and let them go at it for a while. So that was a magical moment, you know? Yeah. Absolutely. Frenchman Street continued to develop into the 2000s, growing along with the Jazz Fest. Now today, if you go to Frenchman Street, well, it'll be quiet and empty because of COVID-19, but if you were to go down there on a Jazz Fest night, you'll see every club packed, music, coming into the streets, brass bands on different street corners, and people streaming out of the restaurants and the bars. As Tom Thayer of DBA says, it got even more popular in 2010. And so, like, we, we were featured in the first Treme, first season one, episode one, and, and, then, and then several other times. So I think that was really what kind of put it on the map for a lot of real music fans, you know. And so music fans, and then through the, you know, the internet kind of becoming more of a big deal and being able to you know, Google stuff, figure where things are. 
you know, that kind of really got people from who were basically wanted to see the real music of New Orleans started, you know, heading to heading to Princeton Street a little more, you know, post Katrina. I had just moved from Los Angeles back to New Orleans in April of 2010, right before the Deepwater Horizon oil rig exploded into that terrible BP oil disaster. In Los Angeles, my acting career, well, it had slow, taken kind of a back, uh, fla- flounder, well, it just grinded to a screeching halt. But when I arrived in New Orleans and saw that productions were buzzing and everybody was working, I found a new opportunity to act again. And I couldn't wait to audition for that show, Treme. All my friends, from actors to musicians and club owners and managers, were getting in on that HBO show, and I was hoping for my chance. Well, I did have a small recurring part, but not as a New Orleanian. I played an Indianapolis actuary who married Terry the Cop's ex-wife. It was still great being part of one of the shows that actually captured New Orleans more accurately than any other before or after. Oh, and I was in that Deepwater Horizon uh, film uh, as well, <clears throat> playing a British petroleum executive. <laughs> Sorry. Okay, back to late night. This atmosphere creates the opportunity for collaborations that are very often one-time affairs, you know, groups that won't play together again. And that's another reason they're so interesting to music fans who venture to New Orleans during the Jazz Fest. Here's George Porter Jr. talking about the unique nature of these collaborations. It was a, a, a late night show. It was at the House of Blues up in that little room up there. And it was um, myself and Brian Stokes, John Modusky. And I think, I want to say, I believe it was uh, uh, um, Adam Deutsch was on drums. And, you know, that, that combination had never played together before ever. You know, so we, we, didn't, and we had no common ground. We had no rehearsal. We just showed up and... And we just started playing music, you know. And uh, it was like you know, three hours later, we ended up, you know, looking at each other and saying, <laughs> "What just happened?" You know. Uh, uh, it was it was a fun night, you know. And that happened for me. That has happened uh, many, many nights. That pretty well captures the magic of the late night scene during Jazz Fest. Of course, there's music every day year-round in New Orleans, and as we've touched upon, musicians in the city are always playing together and sitting in on each other's projects. But this annual gathering of local, national, and international musicians offers a high concentration of talent and experimentation that's difficult to replicate. And for several of the musicians we talked to, these collaborations could lead to new projects. Here's Robert Walter talking about playing with Stanton Moore, the drummer from Galactic. One thing that happens is people will come sit in and then that will become, eventually become a band. So my, when I first started interacting with Stanton Moore, it was from my band playing late night, you know, 20th Congress or Great Boy Alters playing late night. And then Stanton would come from some other gig and sit in for a couple of days. Then we loved doing that. So we ended up playing together a lot and then we formed bands and those became the bands that other people come and sit in with and it just kind of rolls from there um so kind of anything goes at those late nights and there's a financial incentive for the new orleans based musicians to get as much as possible out of the jazz fest period 
It's not uncommon for Ivan Neville to play 15 gigs with six different groups of musicians during Jazz Fest, and Stanton Moore can have two or three shows a day during the fest. I, I've seen Stanton jump out of a car, run into Tipitina's, play an hour and a half set, jump back into that car, head to One-Eyed Jack's, do another show, then dart off to the Maple Leaf for a 2 a.m. show. I mean, I'm winded just reading this. Here's Mark Stone, a roots and blues slide guitarist, songwriter and vocalist, who performs with his band, solo acoustic, and with lots of other people, as you'll hear him talk about. That's a really important harvest time for musicians because, you know, you might be playing at the fairgrounds and playing four other gigs that day. Some people play four gigs at the fairgrounds in a day and then go do three night shows. But there's so much work and there's so much demand and there's so much audience that for a tourist-based town that does not do well in summer, you know, you're looking down the barrel of a tough couple of months or going on the road. So it's your, it's your last chance to really tie up your finances for the most productive time of the year here. And for me as a player and as someone who likes to put on shows, it's just amazing. I mean, I've gotten to pull off all these kind of dream events because the amount of people that would be in town for Jazz Fest made the ideas somewhat financially feasible. And we were able to do really fun, you know, stuff, get 20 people together and do the Layla album or, you know. So it's just an amazing time to be able to pull off some pretty amazing shit. So what's it like working these late night shows during Jazz Fest? We asked Zach Smith, a New Orleans photographer and musician, about that experience. Yeah, man, the late night energy is great. It's also weird because everybody's so fucked up on whatever they just ate. Uh, and, you know, and kind of zombie land in a way. You know, you're shooting at 2, 3 in the morning and the show hadn't started yet. And people, half the people there won't even remember where they are. So... It's a little strange, and then six hours later, you're shooting right next to, you know, hairy-chested Joe with the Jazz Fest shirt from Massachusetts, who's drinking his water. So, yeah, it's really surreal. We'll be right back after this break. In episode three, we talked about the enormous growth of Jazz Fest. After 2004, the Jazz and Heritage Festival stopped booking the night shows. By then, the festival was bringing in between 300,000 and a half a million people to the city each year. This massive success seems to be related to the choice to discontinue the official night shows. Here's Keith Spera of the New Orleans Times-Picayune. Well, you know, Jazz Fest used to have its own evening concert series off-site, um, but then it was kind of a victim of its own success in a way in that the outside the fairground scene grew up so much that there was too much competition for Jazz Fest official concerts. They just basically gave up and stopped doing them. Um, because, yeah, there are so many things going on in town. I mean, that, you know, that span of the festival is Super Bowl week for local musicians. And, you know, various clubs try to outdo themselves by who can have music playing past sunrise the next day, you know, which doesn't make it uh, very easy to get out to the fairgrounds uh, at an early hour the following day. But Jazz Fest is kind of the mothership, but it has all these other satellite events that revolve around it. Um, and, you know, like I said, different clubs have various concert series. For some reason, like Grateful Dead-related things have become a huge deal at night at Jazz Fest. Um, 
you know, not quite sure how that happened, but uh, but but there it is. Uh, so you get a lot of those sort of things, and uh, yeah, it's it's its own thing. I mean, it's it's almost two parts of the experience. Jazz Fest, which ends at seven o'clock, you know, unlike a lot of festivals that go much later. By ending at seven, you give everybody time to go get a bite to eat and then go out to night shows. So that early stop time has definitely fostered the. Uh, music scene in the clubs, you know, because it gives people time to go to another show. You know, if, if the festival ended at 11 o'clock, people would be tuckered out and that'd be it. But um, but by ending at 7, it kind of unleashes all these music lovers who are all fired up and they want to go out and hear some more. No doubt, it's a long, strange trip. And that's just over 10 days. Many music fans won't complain about this evolution. You can literally see music all night long. And there's a greater choice. Variety of bands, venues, price points, start times, way more to choose from. So that's a huge advantage for people who love to see music. But for local musicians, well, it can mean fewer opportunities, with bigger national acts being booked more regularly. Here's New Orleans drummer Terrence Higgins, who we heard from in episode one. But here's the thing. You got a big influx of musicians that are not from New Orleans capitalizing on the whole jazz scene late night. You got the out-of-town promoters coming in, promoting um, the shows. And it's kind of boxing some of the local musicians out. And it's not really a cool thing. I just think Jazz Fest is still great, but we got to find some type of balance there with the, uh, you know, but, you know, it's capitalism in a way, you know what I'm saying? It definitely is that. And for some musicians, even if they wanted to get a local show together, the venues have been booked, the artists are in place, and there's less opportunities. Here's George Porter Jr. on how that has shifted. A lot of those those um, those outside promoters that's been taking over Jazz Fest, now, almost the local promoters don't even have a shot at Jazz Fest anymore as far as getting a, a room to, to put a band in or put a combination of bands in because, of, you know, the... Um, the the uh, out-of-town promoters have pretty much snatched up all the rooms. The clubs themselves don't even book shows anymore. They just they let the out-of-town promoters have the room. Here, I guess then you pay me X amount of dollars and you take the room and I keep my boss and like that. I'm not sure exactly how that works, but you know, all these promoters are bringing in shows or they're bringing in their concept of what they would think people would want to see. There's so many options and choices that it can be overwhelming. But in some ways, maybe this explosive growth of the late night scene has had an effect on the magic of the music. Here's Robert Walter again. There's more out-of-town promoters and there's more bands that kind of tour into Jazz Fest and play the late night slots. It's not as casual. It's not as, um, it's not like, you know, these spontaneous things happening. It's become a real business. And that's one thing that's it's great that it's that, that the late night thing is doing well. But I think in certain instances, it's start, starting to become, you know, um, I mean, lose some of its purity in a way and, and lose some of its um, like looseness and, and sense of um, adventure where now it's sort of like what's going to be a slam dunk? We'll put these like you know, 10 famous jam band musicians on the bill and hopefully something good happens. And in the in the old days, it was a little more organic. So that's one thing that's happening. It's becoming like every year, it's a little bit bigger, a little bit more competitive. And it becomes a sort of like, you know, trying to get flopped even to play becomes hard because 
there's so many, many people coming down there. So we'll, we'll see what happens. I feel like it's almost sort of ballooned and then hopefully it'll start to get sort of back to this organic exchange of ideas rather than a more cynical, like dollar-based model. At this point, where we are in 2020, with the world and the live music situation in the state that it is, we would take supergroups and bigger shows or smaller shows. We would take people we've never even heard of playing in the back of a dive bar, a guy with a piano in the back of a truck, a band on a street corner. We would take anything. We just want to see music in New Orleans. We know that it'll be back. The Jazz Fest, the late night shows, the live music, all of it. And when it does, We'll be waiting. In this episode, we brought you on board the president, deep into the municipal auditorium, and into the clubs uptown and on Frenchman Street. What started as a way to get local musicians more work, and music fans more music for over 50 years, has turned into a worldwide sensation. I like how Papa Molly summed it up, and what keeps him coming back to late night jazz fest shows. I wish I could stay up that late every night during Jazz Fest, but I just, I got to get my rest so that I, I can play my regular gigs, you know? Um, but uh, nevertheless, I still try to make it to, you know, once or twice, at least during Jazz Fest, to go, get out and catch the late night scene, because that is where a lot of the action happens, the stuff you won't see anywhere else. And people that come here from out of town, great musicians, they're just blown away by it. I mean, you know, because you go to a scene like that, Everybody's already finished their regular gig. They're not getting paid to be there. You know, there's, they're just there for the love of music. And, and it's, uh, that's like I say, that's, that is kind of the heart and soul of Jazz Fest in a lot of ways, I think. And so here we are. It's um, 7 a.m. <laughs> yep, we've, uh, we've been out all night. And is the sun always this bright at this time of the morning? Uh, does anybody know, is there a diner open around here? i got to get something in me. You know, in some ways, 2020 just feels like one long hangover. First, COVID-19, then a resurgence in police violence and the murder of more unarmed black people. You know, Jazz Fest and the music of New Orleans, it, it feels kind of far away at these times. You know, that's one of the reasons we really wanted to bring you this series, to help keep those memories alive and to provide... You know, a bit of distraction, maybe a bit of joy into your lives and certainly into ours. And to pay tribute to the people who have helped build the city and the music we all love. By the way, if you enjoy this podcast, please consider giving us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. In the next and final episode of Festival Circuit New Orleans, we're going to look forward and try to make sense of the future of New Orleans music and the Jazz Festival. We'll hear from many people who you've heard from already and bring a couple of new voices that represent the future of New Orleans music, including David Shaw of the Revivalists and Tank from Tank and the Bangus. We will take a look at the current struggles and also talk about what we can look forward to as music fans and musicians and what changes we might expect to see in the music, the music industry, and the Crescent City. As a final note, New Orleans has lost so many wonderful piano masters over the years, like Professor Longhair and James Booker, and more recently, Fats Domino, Dr. John Art Neville, and Alan Tucson. 
these were the foundations of New Orleans music, and they can never be replaced. We were lucky we had them. More recently, we lost another icon. We want to dedicate this episode to another one of those masters, Ellis Marcellus. He was mentioned a lot in this series, but his role in building modern New Orleans music cannot be overstated. He died in early April from complications from COVID-19. In his 85 years on earth, he devoted himself to music education, music advancement, and advocacy for the city of New Orleans. He played with people like Cannonball Adderley, and he spent decades teaching music, including teaching people like Terence Blanchard, Donald Harrison, Harry Connick Jr., and of course, his four sons, Winton, Branford, Delfeo, and Jason Marcellus. New Orleans music wouldn't be where it is without him. Rest in peace, Ellis. Festival Circuit is presented by Osiris Media. This series is narrated and produced by me, Rob Steinberg. Executive producers are Christina Collins, Andrew Goodwin, and RJB, who also double duties as series writer and creator. Produced, edited, and mixed by Matt Dwyer. Show logo by Liz B. The theme song is Jazz Fest Time by Circus Mind with special guest Ivan Neville. Thanks to all interviewees and to WWOZ. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>